0: Um, why don't we get started? A uh, couple people are still enjoying the, the lunch uh, servings in the back. Um, thanks and uh, welcome to the Atlanta Council. Um, this event is on the future of Taiwan's defense role. Um, this is part of our uh, cross-strait series in the Brent Scowcroft Center in our Asia Security Initiative. I'm Barry Pavel. I'm the director of the Brent Scowcroft Center and Atlanta Atlantic Council uh, Vice President. And I'd uh, like to thank the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office. Uh, for their continuous engagement and support of the Council. Earlier this year, we hosted a number of of events in the cross-straits series uh, on the Taiwan elections and their implications for cross-straits relations in the Asia-Pacific, on Asian energy security issues, on the uh, continuously emerging anti-access and area denial uh, military challenges in the Asia-Pacific, and also an exclusive press call last month uh, to discuss the China and Taiwan presidents' meetings uh, right after they held the meeting um, in Singapore. Next year will also be an exciting one for us in this space as we'll observe the outcome and effects of Taiwan's elections. Uh, We plan to continue hosting these these events next year, especially on the post-election Taiwan uh, issues and implications, including on the, the US arms sale, uh, prospects, which we'll discuss here today as well. We had a senior Atlanta Council delegation trip to Taiwan uh, last May. And while there, the delegates met with leadership from both parties in Taiwan, from the DPP as well as the KMT. And the election uh, really was central to our discussion even then. Um, and we learned uh, quite, a, quite a great deal. With the election about a month away now, January 16th next year and the DPP candidate, Tsai Ing-wen, projected to defeat the ruling KMT candidate. Uh, We will focus on the question here today, how might a change in Taiwan's leadership, such as is projected, potentially impact Taiwan's defense posture and role, and what are the second and third order impacts on the immediate region? There's also increasing reporting about the U.S. moving to announce another arms sale to Taiwan. It's been a while. Um, And uh, the reports are suggesting about a billion dollars worth of military equipment um, to Taiwan, first sale in in more than four years. What is, what are the prospects for this? How might the U.S. and Taiwan handle uh, the sale as it goes forward? What are the implications of the actual capabilities? Um, We already have some early discussions uh, on that in the green room here, so we'll want to continue that discussion as well because uh, that'll be rolling on top of the leadership change. And then the other issue that's been discussed, and these won't be the only ones here, but another one that's been prominent is the future of Taiwan's submarine program, which is a key component of its defense role and its defense strategy and posture. September earlier this In September this year, Taiwan announced that it, it had allocated about uh, $92.5 million over four years to launch a long awaited program to build its own diesel electric submarines. Uh, this plan comes as other navies in the region are continuing to expand their submarine fleets all focused on all the well-known uh competitions and uh tensions over the um, territorial and other other disputes so this is a very important um and growing uh component i think of the broader conversation on defense on on defense trends and and posture in the region Um, so besides those issues um, i'm sure our esteemed panelists will also address others on regional defense cooperation, uh, we're tweeting this event. It's public. Uh, uh, we'll be tweeting it live at the hashtag ACAsia from the account AC Skowcroft. Uh, let me introduce our panelists briefly, and we'll, uh, give them maximum time to address uh, these issues. Um, we have uh, Ms. Joanna U. Taylor. She's an adjunct member at the Rand Corporation. Before that, she was the director of the Asia program at the Center for the National Interest, and she organized a track two maritime security dialogue among the U.S., Japan, and Vietnam while there, so very, very qualified for this discussion today. Uh, Prior to that, uh, she served in the office of the Secretary of Defense in the China, uh, as the China country director, and has had a a number of other important positions uh, relevant to the uh, issues that we'll discuss today. Uh, Mr. Robert Manning uh, is a senior fellow here in the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security, He is a very, very uh, sought-after commentator on Asia, but does a lot of other work, too, for us, including releasing a path-breaking report last uh, month, which I I commend to you, on the future of renewables uh, and energy technologies and where all that's taking us uh, globally. Before coming to the Council, Bob served as a senior strategist at the National Counterproliferation Center in the Office of the DNI. Uh, and had other government positions before that, including on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff. We also have Mr. Ian Easton. Uh, He is a research fellow at the Project 2049 Institute, where he conducts research on defense and security issues in Asia. Uh, He previously was a visiting fellow at the Japan Institute for International Affairs in Tokyo, and also served as a a China analyst at the Center for Naval Analyses. He also lived in Taipei from, from 2005 to 2010, so for five years. And then um, last but not least, we have Mr. Isaac Stonefish, uh, moderator. He is Asia editor at Foreign Policy where he uh, does a lot of work on stories across the region. He was previously Beijing correspondent for Newsweek, uh, wrote stories on such subjects as the Dalai Lama's effect on international trade, China's love affair with rogue states, which we can talk about later, and crystal meth in North Korea, which we won't talk about later. Uh, and he has visited North Korea twice. He's a fluent Mandarin speaker and spent seven years living in China prior to joining uh, FP. And so with that introduction, uh, would like to turn it now over to Isaac.
1: Thank you, Barry. And thanks everyone for being here. Uh, I think it's gonna be a really good discussion. It's also great that we have a lot of people in the audience who probably know as much or more about these issues than certainly I do. So. You know, really looking forward to really good engagement from you guys after that. And I think this is a really great time to to be having this conversation. Uh Joanna's gonna kick us off with a look at some of the fascinating changes that might happen if Tsai wins, which <coughs> seems very likely. And also would love to hear just you know your thoughts too on if Eric has a prayer in saving this election or if it's pretty much called. So kick it over to you.
2: All right, great. Thank you, Isaac. Uh, It's always an honor to start off a discussion, so I'll get right down to it. Um, So as as, as I mentioned, I was asked to assess the impact of the 2016 election to Taiwan's defense, military, and national security. Um, And I took that question to mean, like, were the DPP to win, how would the defense agenda be different? And the short answer, uh, at least for me anyways, is that it won't be that much different. And that is because Taiwan's external environment would not have changed much, uh, no requirements to meet the threats and challenges that it faces. I mean, China will still be the number one security threat to Taiwan, the U.S. will still be the number one security partner to Taiwan, and Taiwan will still need to have a strong defense to deter aggression. However, I do believe that the DPP's emphasis uh, on the approach will be different from the Ma administration and that of the KMT in general. Whereas the, KM, uh, the Ma administration have tended to emphasize engaging China as a key to reduce the threat to Taiwan's security environment, most likely the DPP will instead focus more on building up a strong defense internally and renewing ties with like-minded security partners externally as means to safeguard Taiwan's security. The DPP is serious about Taiwan's defense and they have a lot of time to think about that issue. Uh, they have learned a lot from eight years in government under President Xi wen and eight more years as the opposition to assess the results of President Ma's policies. Since June 2013, the DPP think tank, the New Frontier Foundation, has published 12 defense blue papers. The blue papers cover a variety of topics, including greater accountability in the National Security Command establishment, reforming the military and closing the trust gap between the military and the society, Taiwan's threat assessment for 2025, Taiwan's military military capability plan for 2025, means of international engagement, the U.S.-Taiwan security partnership, support for Taiwan's indigenous defense research and development capability, and strengthening Taiwan's defense industry. So as you can see, the range of topics is quite expansive, but if you take it all together, you see three broad themes emerging. One, a greater push to improve Taiwan's indigenous defense research and development capabilities and steps to strengthen the indigenous defense industry, particularly in cyber defense, aerospace, and shipbuilding. Two, efforts to ensure that the evolution of Taiwan's military and the transformation of the military service system is aligned with and meets the needs of Taiwan's democratic society. And three, renew efforts to engage internationally and broaden existing, existing ties with the US and Japan. In terms of deepening Taiwan's indigenous defense R&D capabilities and building up related defense industry sectors, the general tone favors a more self-reliant approach to Taiwan's defense. The DPP is cognizant of the reality that as China rises, Taiwan's foreign, foreign defense procurement process and timetable will likely become more uncertain and precarious. In fact, its assessment is that the question for security partners might move from when is the best time to sell arms to Taiwan to whether arms will be sold to Taiwan at all. Uh, I believe it's a realistic assessment of Taiwan's foreign procurement situation, and the DPP has determined that the only viable alternative is, quote, going indigenous. And Taiwan has a good foundation to do just that. CSIST, short for Zhongshan Institute of Science and Technology, has been the leading national institution for the research, development, and design of defense technology in Taiwan. It has four core areas, aviation, missile and rockets, electronics and communication, and chemicals and explosives. In its heyday of the 1990s, CSISC developed the uh, TC2 air-to-air missile that was comparable to the US-made AIM-120, as well as the Xiong uh, uh, 2 anti-ship missile system that rivaled the US-made Harpoon missile system. It also developed an indigenous fighter jet. However, many of CSIST's indigenously derived advanced weapons have not been sufficiently utilized by the Taiwanese military. With foreign defense acquisition becoming more unpredictable, however, the DPP is pledging to support and revitalize CSIST. Taiwan has an existing shipbuilding industry and aerospace industry that were spin off companies from CSIST that the DPP now wants to put together with a civilian cyber defense industry to form the core of a more entrenched indigenous defense industry. Going one step further, the DPP have recommended research programs into uh, UCAVs and vertical and short takeoff and landing vehicles for the aerospace industry in order to counteract China's overwhelming number of missiles and expansive air defense network. Uh, And they are recommending the initiation of a submarine program for the shipbuilding industry to counteract the growing capability of the PLA Navy. And on the cyber front, the DPP wants to see collaboration between the military and Taiwan's world-class cyber companies on upgrading their products to military use. So overall, The DPP's strategic focus on strengthening Taiwan's indigenous defense industry and R&D capabilities is unmistakable and covers a wide variety of defense capabilities. Hand-in-hand with a more self-reliant approach to national defense, the DPP also envisions rejuvenating long-standing relationships with its partners. With the United States, while expressing the desire to continue the multi-level meetings that Taiwan currently holds with the US government on arms sales talks and related operational and tactical discussions, Taiwan will also like to expand beyond the current arms sales centric security relationship. For example, using arms sales as a gateway to broaden defense industry cooperation between the two countries. They would also like to see assistance from the US when engaging regional partners on security issues, such as establishing a military mutual trust mechanism mechanism among South China Sea climates to reduce tension over disputed waters and territories. Uh, The DPP also wants to demonstrate to the US that Taiwan is serious about its own defense, and part of which is the ability and and willingness to digest arms sales packages that the US has approved. To that end, the DPP stated its preference to increase the defense budget to 3% of national spending. With regards to Japan, the DPP has not published a blue paper that specifically addressed its relations with that country. But it will nevertheless be an important relationship for Taiwan. It is not insignificant that, during her presidential campaign, DPP Chairwoman Tsai Ing-wen went to Japan and, according to news reports, met with Japanese Prime Minister Abe in addition to her customary visit to the United States. However, it is more likely that Taiwan and Japan will explore developing a more robust economic relationship than a defense relationship because Japan has its own geostrategic concerns. But I would argue that diversifying Taiwan's economic development beyond China will certainly enhance Taiwan's overall security outlook as well. With regards to the international community, Taiwan is trying to find new ways to engage the Taiwanese military has a high capacity for disaster relief missions, and its private industry has top-notch information technology security capability. These are two areas that DPP hope to utilize to increase engagement with members of the global community. And finally, I will just spend a little bit of time to talk about the third thing, military reform. Military reform to professionalize the military and assert civilian control over the, over the defense establishment, such as putting in place more civilians in the defense agencies, began in the 1990s during the administration of President Li Deng Hui and continued on to the administration of President Chen Shui-bian. However, with recent scandals, such as the death of Corporal Huang, it seems that the military and its relationship with the people has not evolved fast enough to stay in step with the democratic nature of Taiwanese society today. In addition, the death of Corporal Huang also revealed a lack of comprehensive education within the military on what information security is and how to protect sensitive information. Corporal Huang was thrown into solitary confinement for bringing a smartphone into a prohibited area, which would seem an excessive punishment for the offense. Conversely, restrictions for retired military officers to travel to China are quite forgiving, even though the practice of the Chinese intelligence network targeting Taiwanese military officers is well documented. So therefore, expect the DPP to initiate efforts to harmonize the language and interpretation of various laws that address national security and provide stronger criminal sentences for spies, as well as to work more closely with MND, uh, Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense, to put in place stronger counterintelligence efforts. On continuing military reform and reforming the military service system, the DPP has pledged to review the matter and provide policy guidance on how the country will move forward on the military service system and the old volunteer force in the next QDR to be published 10 months after the new president comes into office. This concludes my remarks, and I look forward to your questions during the Q&A
1: session. Thank you. Thanks, Joanna. Just want to push you on Japan a little bit. Um, Do you really think it's possible that uh, Abe and Tsai, if she does win, could work out some sort of arrangement involving uh, Japan's involvement in Taiwan's defense, or?
2: it's, it's kind of like they, they could you know I, and then if they would do it, it would probably be more on the software aspect, maybe like you know training, information exchange, te- technology transfers. But I think with hardware it's going to be very hard because that would definitely uh, engender a lot of attention uh, from various governments uh, including Chinas. So and I think you know Japan has its own security issues with China they have to kind of watch out for. So it might be hopefully, if there were going to be any exchanges or any security transfers, uh, technology transfers, it will be low key. Um, but that will still add to the overall defense capability of Taiwanese.
1: Great, great. And I think uh, hardware is a great segue into Bob who's going to nerd out for us on Taiwan and submarines. So looking forward to it.
3: Yeah, um, thank you. Um, what I want to do is kind of put it in a regional context and then look at Taiwan's uh, capabilities a bit and then. Put the submarines in, in, in context, and and also touch on uh, Taiwan's role in the region. Um, I think what we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years is uh, unprecedented tensions in the region, um, most of which arising from uh, from China and its growing role, uh, the global commons, cyber, air, and maritime are contested more than they've ever been um and uh i think that these tensions have complicated taiwan's security calculus particularly for military planners in beijing and washington Uh, but they may be creating some new opportunities uh, as well in the past both uh, mainland and taiwan military planners have focused on cross-strait scenarios but over the past uh seven years, as as uh, Ma's economic engagement strategy with uh, the mainland has played out, we've had co- really unprecedented calm. Taiwan used to be at the top of everyone's list of uh, potential conflicts, and now it's way down there after the South China Sea and North Korea and a bunch of others. So I think that may change very soon, but um, it gives you a sense of how the strategic environment has shifted. Um, Taiwan is still a central issue for, for Beijing, but its its near-term focus is really on territorial disputes. Uh, we've all seen its uh, island creation activities and in, in the rocks and reefs and the disputed uh, Spratleys. They are very, they still continue to be very assertive in challenging Chinese, uh, uh, Japanese rather, uh, <laughs> control of the Senkakus, that the number of times the Japanese jets have had to scramble as it keeps going up and it hasn't, it, it's leveled off, but it hasn't really dissipated. Um, and and uh, as all this is, and, uh, but I think it's longer term objective is to build uh, anti-access capabilities and uh, eventual control the first island change to reduce if not eliminate the US presence and certainly to cause second thoughts and Pentagon thinking about uh, planning for contingencies, um, and, and these have created new vulnerabilities for the US. I think there are a lot of people in DOD thinking their way through how to respond to this, and a lot of it has to do with what kind of emerging technologies they invest in over the next de- decade. Um, but at the same time, this Chinese has created an uh, un- enormous backlash. Uh, You could almost close down the State Department, because the Chinese are mobilizing the region for us. Um, And there are a lot of new things we've never seen before, really, in the region. Not just uh, Japan's new role the new Japan Defense Guidelines, Japan's new national security strategy I think is a key element, Uh, but we're also seeing a whole range of intra-Asian defense cooperation we've never seen before. whether it's Japan and India, Philippines, and and Vietnam. Uh, You go down the list, and there there are various trilateral and quadrilateral uh, formations. We can thank China for all of this. Um, And uh, I think the the larger US idea is to gradually put in place a counter-anti-access security network, loosely aligned. and uh, I'll say more about this, but I think at the hub of this is the U.S.-Japan alliance. And uh, if you look at the new defense guidelines, there's sp- very specific language about coordinating policy on towards third countries. Japan has given military equipment out to nine different Asian countries: Philippines, Vietnam, uh, and and I think there's also possibilities in terms of defense production. They're in the process of discussing co-production with uh, the Australians of submarine uh, engines and so on. So there's a lot of new straws in the wind here. Um, I think, I think tai- Taiwan has a lot of capacity that could contribute to some of these new patterns. Um, at the, and and part, of this, part of these new patterns is also unprecedented uh, military spending. Last year, for the first time in the modern era, Asian s- military spending exceeded that of Europe. And uh, this has become a pattern. And one of the most popular items in this buildup has been submarines. Uh, uh, no one wants to be without one. The, the uh, Japanese have a fleet of 16, and they're planning to go up to 22. The Rocks, the Australians, uh, Vietnam is acquiring uh, six to eight diesel subs, Malaysia, Singapore has some, um, Indonesia is in the process of deliberating uh, a submarine fleet. So uh, these are all a, a component of a larger effort, as I said, to, to put, try to put in place a, a counter anti-access network. Um, that was, I think, behind the so-called pivot to Asia. Um, of course, that was more public diplomacy than reality, in the sense, I, I know, because I was working on a lot of this in the State Department. Uh, before 2008, uh, to build closer security relationships with, particularly with ASEAN countries, uh, a- as well as with uh, Japan, and a um, big focus is, is maritime domain awareness capacity. DoD has recently re- put together a 518 million dollar multi-year uh, maritime security initiative, precisely for that for that goal to build uh, maritime domain awareness, ISR capabilities, and so on uh, in, the, in the region, and around the South China Sea. Um, and I think if, we, if this is done right, it can provide a kind of a common operating picture for all the uh, related militaries in the region. Um, now, Taiwan has tremendous capabilities in this, in this area. It, you know, first of all, it starts with the geography, because Taiwan is pivotally the position between, in the first island chain, between the East China Sea to its north and the South China Sea to its south and southwest. So that's a starting point. And, and of course, China, Taiwan has its own claims in the South China Sea, which uh, mirror China's. Um, but in contrast to China, Ma, Ma Yingzhou has proposed a couple of uh, East China and South China Sea peace initiatives that are, have got some interesting elements Uh, to them. Uh, He also signed an unprecedented fishing agreement with Japan, which I think could become uh, a model or an example for the region more broadly. Um, Taiwan has been, has for a long time invested in uh, maritime domain capabilities. um, (coughs) With an impressive array of maritime uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance abilities, that are integrated, redundant, hardened, secure network of land, air, and sea-based radar, sonar assets all around, tied into satellites, UAVs, and other uh, sources. Uh, Taiwan also has a capable SIGINT and uh, IMINT capability, and part of a larger and pretty effective uh, C3I uh, intelligence system. so if you put all that together, I think it gives Taipei the kind of indications and warning system that would be critical. And remember, that the, the, the basic role of Taiwan's defense hasn't changed. It's to uh, keep China at bay as well as possible and long enough for the US uh, to, to intervene in, in a crisis. And I think early warning is a critical element of that. Um, and I think Taiwan is well-situated. I think they need uh, to update some of their equipment, but I think they're, they're in pretty good shape uh, on that. And then there's some ambiguity, uh, unfortunately, about how well-connected or integrated Taiwan's capabilities are with the US, with Patcom and forces in the region. I think there's a lot of, uh, of room for improvement, and this is something that can be done quietly uh, below the surface uh, so the Chinese don't have anything to point at um and that's something we ought to be thinking about in my view um, and there's immediate benefits of this kind of thing in terms of if we have uh, natural or humanitarian disasters, for example. so um, so now Taiwan's in- long interest in submarines is part of this just larger um, picture. Uh, Taiwan has- uh, P3C ASW planes, two squadrons of ASW helicopters, in addition to all the other elements that I mentioned. Um, it has two vintage World War II subs that are mainly museum pieces uh, at this point. It does have two uh, Dutch built subs that are being retrofitted, sort of 1970s vintage. Um, but uh, they've been trying for a while to figure out how to get submarines. They were introduced in 2001 when the Bush administration introduced a, a, a large package that took about 10 years for Taiwan to digest. Some of this is uh, the, due to Chinese pressure. Some of it is due to indecision in, in Taiwan, whose defense spending actually dropped during this period. Uh, so uh, so that's that's been another factor. Uh, and there are some disagreements how to proceed. Um, the U.S. doesn't make any diesel submarines, so it was curious that it was in the arms package. And I think the assumption was that Dutch or German uh, shipbuilders would would partake in in an effort. That nothing came of that due to heavy Chinese pressure. And for about a decade or so, Taiwan was kind of grow, uh, casting about trying to figure out how to go forward. In 2011, Ma uh, announced that they would launch their own indigenous submarine program. And then in last year, a new naval chief of staff came in. They put together a task force of military, shipbuilders, and uh, other industrial concerns, and put together a plan that they sent to the Taiwan legislature in, in 2014. They hope to have eight submarines, uh, the first uh, 1,500 ton class by 2024. Uh, the price tag that I've seen is over $4 billion, so that's that's a big consideration uh, in terms of their overall cost and benefit to their defense uh, spending. And um, the, pr- and the te- access to the technology, of course, is still problematic, because you know the Chinese are going to pressure people. Um, I think the US. Probably could have could do more in terms of canvassing third countries for potential exporters, countries who could provide blueprints, holes, and and various technology. Um, I think the reference was made to Japan, that could that could come into play because Japan has a number of of technologies that uh, that could be helpful. And uh, the question is the same question that the Taiwans have of the U.S. Will the president of the United States authorize the private sector to engage in discussions with Taiwan about uh, providing that technology. And I think a similar question uh, applies to Japan. And I, I would say, uh, based on my experience in Japan, uh, the private sector in Japan is still trying to figure out w- where the boundaries are in terms of Abe's new security policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so this is still a, 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 a something that's uh, a work in progress. And um, broadly speaking, uh, I I think uh, Ian will go into more detail on this. But um, for the US and others, it's always been a balancing act of what we can do for Taiwan. And without uh, raising tensions to the unbearable with China, I can assure you that the Chinese will scream and yell no matter what is in uh, Obama's package. Uh, but um, I think these are the elements that I think, particularly, they need, they need uh, to upgrade things like uh, ASW helicopters and a number of other things uh, that I'm not sure will be in the package. But I'll, I'll stop there, and turn it over to Ian.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Bob. There's a really nice overview of some of the geostrategic issues that <coughs> Taiwan and, and uh, defense issues regarding Taiwan are, are facing. I do want to ask, based on something you said at the beginning of your presentation, about how Taiwan's strait crisis has dropped off the top of the list for you know, U.S. potential threats in the region. Do you think that it's also dropped off the top of China's list? Or do you think that because Taiwan is such an important issue for Mainland Chinese and for Beijing that even though it might be less likely now it's still at the top of the list of what they're worried about. Well,
3: I, I, I think you have to you have to remember that for really since they began modernization in the late '80s, taught, uh, Beijing's military planners had a very simple mission. It was all focused on a Taiwan capability. So uh, they put a lot of that in place. They've got hundreds of missiles on their side of the street. They've got a whole asymmetrical. Uh, approach to to try to figure out, including anti-ship missiles that uh, may be able to to hit an aircraft carrier. Uh, So they're trying to put the U.S. at risk in an intervention scenario. So they've kind of done all that, and and now they're they're expanding their maritime capability in an area they haven't had since uh, for about 600 years uh, in terms of aircraft carriers. And building a blue water capacity, hmm. they just st- established a base. They're establishing a base in Djibouti, for example. They're building ports in Gwadar and in Pakistan. So it, it's a very different uh, strategic reality that they're gearing up for.
1: Hmm. Great, great. No, and I think that's also a, a nice segue into Ian and the geostrategic reality that the Obama administration faces right now with this new tranche of, of weapons sales. So. Looking forward to hearing your insight on it. Okay, well,
4: uh, <clears throat> thank you, Isaac. And a very good afternoon to you all, and thank you to the Atlantic Council for uh, the invitation and the opportunity. Uh, it is truly a pleasure to be here on this panel uh, discussing such a uh, fascinating topic. Um, now, I've been asked to say a few words about arm sales. And this is a timely topic, I think, and it's an important one. Because reportedly, there is a very large arm sales package that's in the works. Uh, according to reports, it's about a billion dollars potentially, and we don't know for sure when it will be announced or when it will be, uh, when Congress will be notified. But if it were to happen this month, it would be the first congressional notification since the September of 2011. That's four years and three months ago. So that's a long time. Uh, it's historical. It's, there's never been an arms sales freeze for that long. Um, so it would be a big deal. Now. We don't know for sure when it will be announced or what's in it, but reportedly it includes uh, some missile frigates, the the Perry class missile frigate for the ROC Navy, Taiwan's Navy. It includes some Amtraks, uh, amphibious assault vehicles for the Taiwan Marine Corps. Uh, It might include an Apache helicopter, uh, missiles, Stinger missiles, tow missiles, Javelin missiles for uh, Taiwan's army. Uh, So it would be fairly comprehensive in that sense. Uh, But again, we're not sure what it's comprised of, but that's kind of what's out in the media today. Now, the real question is, why does it matter, right? And what are the implications of this? What are the problems that might arise, potentially? What are the risks that are associated with an arms sale to Taiwan? Uh, And what are some of the benefits? Uh, So just to briefly touch upon each of those points. First of all, why does it matter? Well, it matters at the strategic, I would argue, strategic, operational, and tactical levels. At the strategic level, it matters because Taiwan's defense matters, right? It's clearly in the U.S. interest to have a free, democratic, and secure Taiwan. That, that's clear. Uh, Taiwan is unlike many other U.S. allies and security partners in that it faces such an extremely challenging defense environment. So when you talk about the defense of Taiwan, And when you think about arms sales to Taiwan, it's against the backdrop not of a border dispute or of a maritime dispute, uh, not against the backdrop of a a pirate problem uh, or a terrorist threat uh, or even a gray zone contingency, uh, the likes of which Japan faces. We're talking about the freedom of 23 million people. We're talking about a potential invasion and occupation at the hands of a brutal regime. Uh, That's really what's at stake here. Uh, And so it's very important for that strategic reason. It's also important, of course, because it's the law. The Taiwan Relations Act, which is U.S. Public Law 96-8, 1979, makes it the law of the land that the U.S. provide uh, defense uh, services and equipment to Taiwan to help it uh, have an adequate self-defense capability. Uh, And so uh, every arms sale that's announced to Congress is Uh, kind of a renewal of our commitment to Taiwan's security. And uh, it shows that we are in fact following the law, the Taiwan Relations Act. It's also important for the strategic message I think that it sends to Beijing. Uh, It's a signal. It's a signal politically to Beijing that its threats against Taiwan are not legitimate, not in the eyes of America, and they're not acceptable. It's also the most clear manifestation of the US position on Taiwan's sovereignty. Now, of course, that is very ambiguous. That is the definition of ambiguity. But this is probably the most clear manifestation uh, of our position, Uh, because bear in mind that uh, an arms sale through FMS channels is essentially a government-to-government interaction. And it's one of the few that we have with Taiwan. Uh, Certainly, it's the most visible. Uh, This shows, in essence, that we don't think Taiwan is part of the PRC that we observe, despite our one China policy, which is again very vague, we observe the objective reality. If you've lived in China, if you've lived in Taiwan, I've lived on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, uh, it's clear that there are two legitimate governments on each side, uh, and that the objective reality uh, is that Taiwan is not part of the PRC today. If it was, of course, we would not be selling Taiwan arms. That that would be actually illegal to do so. Uh, And so it's important for that strategic message that it sends to the world especially when you consider the constraints that Taiwan faces. Taiwan is completely, not completely, but almost completely marginalized and isolated uh, in the international community. And so this is uh, the strongest show of support that I think any country on the planet gives Taiwan. So it's very important at at the strategic level uh, for all of those reasons. Now at the operational level of analysis, uh, US arms sales to Taiwan, believe it or not, do complicate PLA war plans. They, they complicate Chinese war plans. If you're uh, in the Nanjing military region, uh, and you're in your bunker, and you're doing war games, and you're planning for the invasion of Taiwan, and you're exercising that capability, as they do all the time, uh, U.S. new U.S. capabilities or uh, more U.S. capabilities to kind of uh, update some of the, the aging American capabilities that Taiwan has, which I think is mostly what this arms package is about, those complicate your planning. Uh, It's almost as if Uncle Sam is taking a little bit of water and he's sprinkling it on the the vulnerable circuitry of your war plans Uh, because they have to uh, then, after an arms sale, they have to study exhaustively what this means for their plans, and they have to prepare accordingly. And if you're familiar with Chinese military campaign plans, you know that the invasion of Taiwan or even a blockade of Taiwan is incredibly difficult and it's incredibly complex and the PLA has no experience whatsoever with any operation of this magnitude. And so anything that happens, anything that's new, uh, changes their calculations and it makes things actually more difficult for them. Uh, Now at the tactical level, I think it's important because an arms sale is more than just equipment, an arms sale is actually, it involves uh, a relationship. It involves a training relationship. It involves a maintenance and support relationship. It involves uh, interactions between our military and Taiwan's military, all of which in the aggregate make Taiwan a much more professional, much more lethal uh, combat fighting force. Uh, And so it it has true tactical utility, not only because the equipment is good, uh, but for all of those other sort of intangible reasons. Uh, And kind of on that point, morale. Uh, Again, Taiwan's isolated, so it's gonna be tough to be in the Taiwan military when you're not even recognized as a normal country in the international community. Having US military equipment and training uh, is a significant point of pride for the Taiwan military. It gives them a lot of confidence that they otherwise would not have. Uh, If you've been to Taiwan, if you spent time over there, you'll know that they put Americans um, on a pedestal, especially our military is put on a pedestal. I don't know that we deserve that all the time, uh, but that's the way it is. They really view the U.S. military as the gold standard. And so it's a real point of pride for Taiwan's military, and it really does boost, I think, their confidence. Uh, and I know there's, we've got Taiwanese fighter pilots here in the, the audience, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, but that's my impression uh, when I'm in Taiwan visiting military bases and talking to folks, both at the grassroots level and uh, all the way up. I think it gives them a lot of confidence to have that relationship. Now, what are the potential drawbacks, right? Because there are potential drawbacks. Uh, One, of course, is that it could do damage to the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, We know from past experience that Beijing will go out of its way to damage the U.S.-China relationship in spite, kind of in in a fit of pique, uh, because we've sold... uh, Arms to our Democratic friends in Taiwan. Uh, so we know this is gonna happen. Now, if you look at the record, uh, every case in the past has shown us that there is damage, there's a rift that forms, but it's always very temporary and it's always very uh, surface level. They generally cut the, the exchanges that they like the least and that are actually least important. Um, So it doesn't generally do a a lasting damage, and it certainly doesn't harm U.S. interests, because what's the alternative, right? That's the question we don't ask enough, I don't think, in Washington. We're always asking ourselves, what might China's reaction be if we sell something to Taiwan, or if we do an exercise with Japan, or uh, or what have you? The real question we maybe want to think about asking more is, what will happen if we don't? What would happen if we didn't sell weapons to Taiwan? What would happen to the military balance in the Taiwan Strait? And would that be destabilizing? I would argue that it would certainly be very destabilizing. And we would really be tempting uh, a very huge problem. So better to take the short-term pain than a long-term uh, risk uh, of potentially full-on war. Now, second challenge, potentially, is the threat of espionage. Uh, We all know that Taiwan, like many countries in the world, including our own, faces a very significant Chinese espionage threat. And so there's always a concern that anything we sell Taiwan could be compromised. Uh, On this, I think it's a very real threat uh, in the sense that Taiwan does, uh, like many countries, face a serious uh, espionage competition with the mainland. But I think if you've spent time in Taiwan and if you've looked at their counterintelligence capabilities and you've compared them to other countries in the region, our other allies and security partners, Taiwan actually does have a very good record of catching Chinese spies and of protecting US uh, defense secrets, especially compared to to many others in the region, uh, including some of our allies. So if you do that side by side comparison, I think Taiwan comes out uh, in a pretty pretty good place. Um, Moreover, we don't sell anything to anybody around the world, even our closest allies in NATO, that we could not afford to lose uh, in the very, very unlikely event that that were to happen. That's why we have all kinds of uh, studies that are conducted uh, that are actually baked into the cake of foreign military sales uh, in this regard. And the third potential challenge is uh, the one involving the things that we actually sell. So there's a very rich, sometimes fierce debate that goes on over whether we're selling Taiwan the right things. Or whether our arms sales to Taiwan are merely symbolic. They're just a gesture of support that actually, if there was a real war, maybe won't swing the balance in in Taiwan's favor, right? That's uh, a real debate that goes on. On that point, I would say, again, that every arms sale has strategic value, it has operational value, and it has tactical value. Now, each arms sale, depending on the competition, composition and the frequency is going to have a different mix of those things. But they're all important for all of those reasons. And you can kind of analyze the value of each, but they all have value. And I think in their aggregate, if they are frequent and high quality, they do have a significant role uh, in deterring Chinese aggression against uh, Taiwan. Now, of course, there's no silver bullet that we could provide to Taiwan. Again, its defense uh, environment is uh, very severe. Uh, But I do think in the aggregate, over time, they do have a significant role to play. Uh, Now, in terms of, just a final point on what we might see in the future, right? Because this is just one blip in time. This is just one moment in in a much longer uh, spectrum of time. Uh, This arms sale, I think, is important because it breaks the ice. Uh, There's been, again, an arms sales freeze in Taiwan for four years and three months. So it's very significant in that it breaks the ice. It gets us back on track. It's a renewal of the U.S. commitment to Taiwan security. And so no matter what it's comprised of, uh, it's very significant uh, for those reasons. Now, in terms of future arms sales, I think there are a few challenges uh, that we face uh, and things that we might want to consider. The the first is having U.S.-Taiwan cooperation on building a stronger Taiwan reserve force. Uh, The second, I think, is uh, this issue Uh, that was spoken to very well on Taiwan's domestic defense, its indigenous defense industry. Now, our Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, uh, Abe Denmark, has spoken very eloquently on this uh, topic. And I think uh, this is uh, an area that there's a a real commitment to. Uh, And I think probably Taiwan's indigenous defense submarine program is a really good place to start, where uh, U.S. defense industry can be supporting Taiwan in a whole range of ways um, that are, no pun intended, kind of below, uh, below the surface. Um, now, on uh, fighters, because we don't think this sale is going to include new F-16s, for example, which is kind of an outstanding uh, request that Taiwan has had since 2007, I believe, um, that might be something that we could look for in a future, a sale, a new F-16s, uh, also, I don't know if Taiwan's requested it, I don't know if they feel they need it, but potentially Harrier jump jets as well. Uh, that would be uh, perhaps a very suitable uh, capability for Taiwan's unique defense environment in the very near term, and something that could perhaps lead to a more advanced uh, stealth capability uh, in, um, in the, the longer term future. And then finally, I think there's a need to bring back the uh, defense talks. So we used to have uh, a mechanism where our militaries would sit down with each other every single year and talk and Taiwan could submit letters of, of uh, request, LORs, and we did away from that. We, we, we got away from that, we did, we did away with it temporarily. I think that probably needs to be brought back because there are a lot of requests uh, that I think Taiwan wants to make, but it doesn't really feel comfortable making those right now in the current environment, again, because of this this long standing arms sales freeze. And so I think there's a, a lot of good things that are going on right now, and I think there's a lot more that we can look forward to uh, in the future. So I think uh, I am feel very optimistic actually right now. So, Isaac, I turn it back to you.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. Those are really, really nice remarks there, um, with the caveat that, of course, no one can predict the future. I mean, do you think it's actually possible that the US would decide to wait until after the Taiwanese election to sell arms, or do you think this is? Something that we should all be planning for in the much shorter term?
4: Oh, of course, I don't know. Uh, there's absolutely no way to know uh, whether uh, it will be before Congress goes out of session this month or whether it would be next month or, I mean, sometime after that. We don't know for sure, um, but just based on some, I think, very good media reporting, it will probably be in the very near future. Gotcha.
1: So nothing to set your clocks on, but something that we maybe you should expect sometime yeah. soon. Um, Timing-wise, we're gonna open up the floor right now for questions. Uh, when you ask a question, tell us very briefly who you are and keep your remarks short, and also just remember the difference between a question and a comment. So, opening it up. Uh,
5: thank you. Um, we have a mic or uh, Mike, right there. okay, uh, thanks. Chris Nelson, Nelson Report. It's great to be up and around again. Um, Given the anticipated results of the election, you know we agree it's going to be a, a big surprise if it's not Tsai Ing-wen in the DPP. How does that change the threat assessment in the Strait? I think we need to talk more about that. Uh, you know, Ma was really working hard to accommodate. Tsai Ing-wen has been working hard to sound to sound like it, but the Chinese have been really pushing the 92 consensus and demand that you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, do you anticipate heightened tensions no matter what? Given the fact of a DPP return to the presidency, and how does that impact on on arms sale decisions? Given the uh, you know, on the one hand they're inherently provocative. On the other hand, if the threat is there, you got to do it. So uh, uh, let's talk a bit more about about the re- the apparent coming reality of a potentially significant change in the strategic threat atmosphere in the Strait. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Chris. that was a good question. Who wants to tackle that?
3: Uh, Bob? I'll start. Um, well, I think what you raised is is a is a good argument for why they ought to do the arms sale while Ma is still in office. Yeah. Because whatever happens, it's going to be a lot more complicated with the DPP government. Yeah, supplies, uh, so, if anybody in the White House is paying attention, um, <laughs> they ought to be thinking about that. Uh, <coughs> I, I also think that uh, you know what we saw with Ma's uh, meet uh, Xi Jinping unprecedented meeting with Ma is that the Chinese are are focused on this and that she feels comfortable enough in his consolidation of power that he can maybe be a little more creative um, than Chinese tend to be. Um, So I think there's, I also think that when Miss Tsai was here a few months ago, she made a, a big effort going around town underscoring her commitment to the status quo. And, and I do believe the DPP has learned uh, quite a bit of lessons from the Ho Shen Shui Bian uh, experience. So I don't think it'll be as rocky as some people fear.
4: Wanna pick up on that? Chris, I would just say that, um, you know, sometimes I wonder if it's not a myth that things are actually so peaceful right now and that things have been so peaceful. I think Taiwan has shown a lot of goodwill towards China over the past seven, eight years, but I don't think it's been reciprocated. Uh, China continues to build up its capabilities against Taiwan. It's doubled, double the number of short-range ballistic missiles aimed at Taiwan over the past decade. It's double. It has deployed entirely new systems, uh, offensive cruise missile systems, offensive drone systems. It's built an entire mock-up of the presidential office in downtown Taipei, and it's fired missiles into them to test them. Uh, that started, I think, two or three years ago. Uh, they've been doing uh, all, a whole range of activities which suggest that Taiwan's goodwill has not been reciprocated, and it's actually a myth that things have been so peaceful. Uh, now, I do think that the, co- the Chinese coercion against Taiwan is going to be more apparent next year because I, I frankly don't think there's anything that uh, Dr. Tsai could do that would... Um, would really enable Beijing to not ramp up uh, coercion. I, I don't think there's anything that she could possibly do. I don't think Beijing going to trust her. I don't think she's going to trust Beijing, especially um, after some of the things that we've seen. Uh, and so I do think, actually, the old flashpoint, the old hotspot, uh, is going to come back. Uh, because again, what other options does China have? Uh, they've not won hearts and minds. Uh, they continue to ramp up their military threat against Taiwan. Uh, and so really, no matter who's elected, I think this is going to become a more important issue. And unfortunately, it may be the case that part of this has been caused by the U.S. The fact that we haven't sold uh, anything to Taiwan for f- four years and three months and counting may actually be encouraging uh, more Chinese assertiveness in the Taiwan Strait uh, and instead of preventing it. Uh, And if this continues, if we don't have uh, yearly regular high quality arms sales, bear in mind from 1990 until the year 2005, there was a congressional notification every single year, oftentimes four or five separate notifications per year. Now since 2005, six years have gone by in the last decade with no new congressional notifications. So not only is it a four plus-year arms sales freeze, there's also a a trend sharply away from regular notifications. And I think this may actually be encouraging very bad behavior on the part of Beijing. And I think the United States really does need to do a lot, not just arms sales, a lot more than that, to signal its uh, renewed commitment to Taiwan's security if we do, in fact, want to avoid having to deal with a very serious strategic situation in the coming years.
1: I think I'm just going to disagree with you very slightly. Uh, we also have an election coming up. And so far, China has been a very small issue in the in the election. And China-Taiwan has not been an issue. And Beijing might think, after the January election, that it's better to keep Taiwan out of the debates, keep it out of the election, until after our election, when it might be a more opportune time for them to raise tensions. So possibility, and I guess we'll see. But back to and questions. I oh, did you want to I jump in? I just want to
2: add that. You know, also, like, on the, on the Chinese side, you know, I mean, Xi Jinping, he's kind of, like, you know, gone about this anti-corruption campaign in, in China, right? I mean, like one way of looking at it is he is trying to root out corruption within the government system, but another way of looking at it is that he's trying to consolidate his power. And and all reports seem to indicate that he is consolidating his power. I mean, the way that he was able to reach the, the high echelons of the military establishment is actually quite impressive. Um, you know, so then with such a strong leader, you would think that he would have flexibility with policy like so it's a matter of choice whether to be flexible in Taiwan or not. And so I think there were some speculation and hope that perhaps in the Xi Ma meeting, um, he will be able to be more flexible and kind of save the KMT, so to speak, in that campaign, right? I mean, if he, he was just able to throw something at KMT at President ying Zhou, you know, about cross-strait relations, you know, it would go a long way for, for, for Chu's presidential prospects. But he didn't. No, you know, in fact, he actually forced, I mean, he, he, he tried to force ying Zhou to we actually got monitor to say, one China principle, which is a Chinese terminology. And then the compromise seemed to be one China principle, not in quotes. So, so he would just just, just keep, kind of keep pushing and pushing and pushing. So, so I mean, it's almost like a choice. He doesn't want to be flexible. He doesn't want to negotiate with the Taiwanese regarding their, their future. Um, and, and so like, even though it might seem that in the last eight years, cross relations have been very peaceful, it's actually not peaceful. It's almost as if China has ramped down this rhetoric because things are going their way towards unification uh, and kind of taking away the choice from the Taiwanese people. I mean, it's kinda of like death march almost for, for the Taiwanese people. So so it's um, so so I, I would think that as Ian mentioned earlier, that the, the 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 lowering of tensions is actually quite deceptive.
1: Gotcha, Bob, I know you have a response. Maybe we could get Two more questions,
6: Just and then you can have your real quickly, I, I, I that. Think that if, uh,
3: yeah, I think it's worse than that. Um, in the sense that uh, Taiwan, China's strategy over the last decade has been to see economic integration as as a driver of political integration, and in fact, the absolute opposite has has happened. Um, Xi Jinping a couple of times has repeated the one country, two systems things, which makes everybody in Taiwan want to vomit, and. Um, uh, that, you know, even before the umbrella revolution in Hong Kong, there was deep suspicion of Beijing and, and that the Hong Kong arrangement hasn't quite worked as it was supposed to. Uh, after, after that, and I think the Chinese really have been tone deaf on this. Uh, the only encouraging sign was that the meeting with Ma, he didn't use that phrase at all. Um, so maybe, maybe there is a learning curve. And, and, and the last point I'll make is if, if he does have that flexibility you were referencing, there are a lot of interesting trade-offs that he could that he could think about uh, with the new DPP government. There's going to be a, uh, the DPP is even more interested in expanding Taiwan's political space. Taiwan is a member of, of APEC and theoretically permitted to join TPP, and they've already expressed an interest in that. Uh, That's something that could be dangled by by Xi to kind of uh, reinforce uh, Dr. Tsai's commitment to the status quo, shall we say.
1: Great, okay, questions, please.
7: Hi, I'm Eric Gomez from the Cato Institute. I have two quick questions for Ms. Taylor. uh, On the issue of defense spending in Taiwan, the, Pledges made by the DPP are a welcome sign, but I'm wondering if you could comment on any domestic, political, or economic challenges to implementing the 3%, um, to implementing that target, because I think you know, that's a common thing for US partners to say, oh yeah, we'll spend more on defense, and then as soon as they, is that just an election pledge, or how realistic is that to be followed through on? And the other thing to consider is that um, when we talk about this relationship, we're really talking about in one of the consequences being great power war between the United States and China, both nuclear armed powers. And from the recent RAND military scorecard, I'm not sure how <laughs> how likely it is we'll be able to keep pace um, and actually come out on top, with, if not at significant costs. So I'm wondering if the panel could comment generally on how long, is the, how long should the U.S. be willing to take these higher costs um, for a benefit that essentially remains flat?
1: Great. Okay. So before you guys jump in, let's get just one more question here, uh, if anyone has a question they'd like to ask.
7: then than it is now. And the Taiwan lobby was much stronger. The US uh, lobby for the the Taiwan cause was much stronger here in the US and on the Hill. And I've heard from from friends that say that that support, that voice isn't as strong as it used to be. And could someone address that and whether that's going to come back?
1: Great okay, so we have three questions um, Joanna, do you want to take the first one on domestic challenges to defense spending
2: yeah I mean there will be domestic challenges I mean you know like the, the national the, the budget itself I mean like basically if you're going to increase the defense budget to up to three percent you're taking that money away from someplace else so it's going to be very very hard to negotiate you know who's going to lose that sliver of pie so so there will be there will be it will be hard and also furthermore you have to think about just like defense planning right I mean in the u s you know it's it's five years, you know, it's a five-year plan. So, I mean, it's to say to increase the budget to 3%, it's not going to be a thumb of fingers just because defense planning doesn't really allow for it. I mean, it's probably going to be incremental. So um, I think the DPP probably said that to demonstrate its, its, its will and desire to kind of work more closely with the U.S. To, uh, to, to enhance Taiwan's defense and also to show its, its, its determination to do that themselves more than anything. And I think maybe eventually they will, they will work up to 3%. Um, I think that would be a goal. But a lot of negotiations need to be made. Yeah.
1: And then Bob, do you want to address the question, Eric's other question, on if there is a war or the idea of a war between US and China and how long the US can keep pace with China's double-digit military growth?
3: Well, I, I put a lot of stock in deterrence. Um, you know we, there's a reason we didn't fire a bullet at the Soviet Union for seventy years. Uh, and, and that, that reason is nuclear weapons. And one of the things China has invested a lot in is is um, modernizing its not the, so much the quantity but the quality of its nuclear deterrent. And I think at the present they have a fairly capable uh, second survivable second strike capability. So I think, I, I think in that sense, um, and, and of course, what would be the point of destroying Taiwan in order to, to take it? I mean, there's, there's some, I don't want to get into making rational actor fallacies, but um, it does, I, I think the question really is the, is the other way around to some extent is to what degree is Xi Jinping willing to live with the status quo? because he's got a pretty full plate of, of much bigger problems, uh, both internally and in the region. He's, he, he's, he's managed to completely mobilize an entire region from Japan to India uh, against him. And as I mentioned, in, in new kinds of defense cooperation that no one ever saw before since World War II in Asia. So and I, I think over recent months, we're seeing a kind of backtracking on the part of China uh, the, the trilateral meeting with with uh, Park and, and Abe, and the meeting with Abe bilaterally, uh, and and they made a lot of big progress on the trilateral relationship. He went to Philippines, he went to Vietnam. So I think that they're not entirely tone deaf, and I think that they have begun to to, to see the the uh, counterproductive character of their of their policies. Uh, and that's been that's usually a pattern. China will do some stupid things, but unlike us, they usually correct them. Um. <laughs>
1: um, Ian, then for you for Dana's question on the that perceived weakening of the Taiwan lobby in D.C.
4: Well, Dana, I've not been in Washington long enough to know. Uh, I'm. I think I would defer to to Bob on that one. Um, I, I really I'm not that familiar with it. Um, but just on the Eric's question regarding the RAND report, I think it's very useful to have this type of operational analysis, to look at what these type of wars would require and kind of where we're going. Um, Naturally, they don't look good because operational analyses and and war plans, um, they're very pessimistic by their very nature. We always have to assume the very worst. We always make the the bad guys out to be ten feet tall, even if we know they're actually not. and we always make ourselves to be you know five or six feet tall, even if we actually may be ten feet tall. and so it's just kind of the nature of uh, this type of analysis and the, the nature of these type of uh, assumptions, the fundamental assumptions that drive some of these conclusions. Uh, but I completely agree uh, with with Bob on this one um, that actually the name of the game is preventing war, right because no one thinks that a war with China would be pretty. It would be very, very ugly. No one thinks that it would be low risk. No one thinks that people would not die. They certainly would. Uh, and so we want to avoid it. We want continued peace and prosperity in Asia. We want to deter conflict from happening. And I think we're, we're actually very lucky to have the two commitments that we do in the Taiwan Relations Act. I addressed the first about providing uh, arms. Uh, the second is that the United States must maintain the capacity to respond to uh, Chinese threats against Taiwan, coercive threats or the use of force. Uh, That means, in essence, that by law, the Pacific Command must prepare plans and capabilities and exercise them to make sure that that they're actually certified to come to Taiwan's defense in the event of this nightmare scenario occurring. And so that's that's a nice ringtone. And so I think the combination of those two things, us helping Taiwan defend itself, and us having the, the commitment to, if in the worst case scenario it were to happen, that we could come to Taiwan's rescue. Those, that combination is a very good balance. And I think taken together, they actually can prevent war. And I'm very optimistic that if we're smart, uh, and if we work more closely with Taiwan, we can actually maintain a favorable balance uh, against China for as far as the eye can see.
1: I think you were gonna jump in on Taiwan uh, lobbying DC. Uh,
2: yeah, sure. Um, okay, well, I mean, I think, I think uh, you know, par- part of the reason why it, it's, it's because of a, a result of Taiwan's democratization. There's more than one voice about what is Taiwan, what is ROC, and how to defend that piece of territory. And it's unfortunate you know, that the many, many segments uh, cannot kind of get together and try to lobby as a group. I mean, I think looking at the Taiwan lobby, you know, from the outside, I mean, that kind of discussion seems to be very philosophical. Uh, but it seems very important to that. I mean, like within within that group, I mean, p- there's a difference between the Republic of China and Taiwan, actually, for for some of these people. And I think, and it's unfortunate. And then like it's it's, it's they're not able to unify. And as a result, some of the some of the kind of uh, arguments and, and, and narratives to Taiwan's defense get diluted because of this lack of unity. Um, and and uh, it's, but, but you know what though, I mean that could be just be growing pains because of Taiwan's democratization. You know what I mean, I think with more time perhaps they'll figure out that, you know, everybody else is them as one group and they should try to work together. Um, but I would also like to address your question about, you know, this great war between the United States and China. Um, you know, like if you step back a little bit further, we are all buying into the Chinese rhetoric that they have a right to invade Taiwan because it's part of Chinese territory like with time memorial. That is actually not true. Right, I mean, we, we have to start thinking about the Chinese rhetoric to, to, it's illegitimate. Right, it is not their right to take Taiwan. I mean, if you can go back to even like Mao Zedong's words, I mean, like when they were still fighting, fighting the, um, the you know, the, the Japanese, you know, during World War II, he actually classified Taiwan along with Korea Peninsula and Vietnam as fellow Asian brethren that need to be liberated from, from the colonial masters they did not see Taiwan as Chinese territory that need to be retaken so that the Chinese nation can be whole again. So so we, we need to almost like challenge the Chinese rhetoric and the narrative on why it is right for them okay for them to take Taiwan and, and, and start challenging the concept itself. And, and, and perhaps that way by, you know, that you don't have to even get to the whole kinetic aspect of it because the, the idea itself should not be legitimate and should not find a place in international discussion about Taiwan's status and in Taiwan's
1: future. Um, and Dana, I'm just gonna jump in very quickly on your on your question. Uh, it seems to me that Taiwan, the Taiwan lobby in DC has grown far weaker over the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, mostly because uh, actually basically all because of the rise of China and the fact that if you want to do, you know, back in the day, 20, 30 years ago, if you wanted to do business in China, going through Taiwan was a great way to do it. Going through Hong Kong was a great way to do that. You don't need to do that anymore. You can go directly to China. And you know the huge business opportunity that China brings to you know, congressmen and senators and a lot of different interest groups in the United States makes the Taiwan lobby more and more irrelevant, in my opinion. Um, Chris, I think you were gonna jump yeah, in too. If you will indulge a historical
5: memory, uh, uh, Chris Nelson, yeah, I was here back in the old days. Uh, in fact, uh, Jim Pristop but NDU and I were the junior staffers on House Foreign Affairs for the Taiwan Relations Act, and uh, just a, you know, you know, the Taiwan lobby in those days was really something. Big T, big L. Uh, one of one of the, the near death experiences of my life was coming out of Chairman Wolf's office during the height of the formulation process, and I walked. I walking up the hall in the Rayburn, and I see Walter Judd and Madame Chiang Kai Shek coming down the hall looking for me. I mean, it was a terrifying thing. I, I fled in the other direction, and that's kind of how it was. Well, you know, uh, ask yourself today if is you know, if, if Techro shows up. You know, our are, are staffers going to cower in 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 the bathroom. Obviously not. Um, uh, <laughs> and, They didn't get me, obviously. Uh, More seriously, uh, and this is gonna sound nasty, I don't mean it, but I remember at the time thinking, getting the TRA through Congress, this is freaking amazing, because to be perfectly frank, at that time, Congress was bought and paid for by the Taiwan lobby, it was enormously active with campaign contributions and, you know, it it was an incredible operation. Mm -hmm. That's simply gone, and you're exactly right as to what happened over the years. You know, China happened, and that's how we got the T.R.A. approved. Actually, conservative Republican members, who were, uh, you know, uh, totally and sincerely members of the Taiwan lobby, were also thrilled at the idea of being in on the ground floor of opening up Red China. You know, the Gang of Four had been gone for two years, and Mao was dead, and you were meeting all these people who were hoping, hoping, hoping they didn't have to wear their damn Mao jackets, and maybe they'd get a bicycle. This was really exciting. So, you know, sincerely, uh, uh, Christian Republicans, religion was very important. They bought off on Taiwan Relations Act because it had the arms sale thing in it. So it was it was the allure of China. And of course, that's simply grown, and now it's real money. And Taiwan, of course, can't compete against that anymore than anybody else can. So to answer your question, it was really important. And it's now, I'm not even sure it's
6: the right question anymore. I think Sorry, that's history lesson. Point.
1: Yeah, no, thanks, Chris. We have a question up here.
6: Well, maybe a follow-on commentary. I've been around for a long time too. I'm Mike Fonte, I'm sorry. I'm the Democratic Progressive Party Director of their office here in Washington. But I've been here since 1984. Um, part of the other part that has happened with the Taiwan lobby is the anti-communism of the, of the Mao administration, for example. I mean, Mao administration wants to make peace, so there's a lot less money being thrown at trying to oppose China's influence, it seems to me. Not that the DPP is going to throw a lot of money at an anti-China crusade, mind you, but I think that's, that's a big factor. I mean, a lot of that money that came in tow was to keep Taiwan ROC safe, and that's no longer in place, I don't think. So that's, that's another factor. Uh, we, we, I'm probably one of the lobbyists, if you want to add me on the list. We do our, we do our part, but it's not anywhere near the volume it was before. One, one thing I want to add to uh, very fine presentations, thanks very much is this 3% shot is obviously a target. What's more, far more important, I think, is what uh, Joanna's already underscored. What are you gonna do with the money, right? Whatever you have, you have to use it effectively. <clears throat> and I think if you look, our defense papers that Joanna mentioned are on the website of the DPP if you wanna look at them. <clears throat> and there's a very clear look at the, what's the threat, what's the strategy, and what are we gonna do to meet it? And I think that's where you'll find some of the details that will help you understand where are we going to go with whatever money is available?
1: Great, great. Um, does anyone want to address where? What are we going to do? What are they going to do with the money? Uh, or should we open up for another question? Anyone wants to jump in now? All right, let's take a let's take another question. I'll take one um, quick thing. Quickly, yeah.
3: Uh, given the, the enormous cost of the submarines that they're thinking about, uh, I, I guess I would suggest it might. They, they might think a little more creatively about how to how to do this. Uh, for example, there are much more, 10 times smaller, 150-ton submarines that Iran, for example, has that would be much cheaper. There's also uh, increasingly capable uh, stealth water drones that can be on or below the water that can do, have a lot of uh, capabilities, both intelligence and operational. Um, so th- those are things that would be a lot cheaper and would give them a good chunk of that, the capability they're looking for.
4: On that point, though, both on defense budget and on the submarines, um, you know, one of the unfortunate realities of our times is that all the democracies face this challenge. Does the United States spend enough on defense? I'm not sure that we do, especially in the face of a rising China. Does Taiwan, does Japan, does Australia? I think everybody wishes they had more money to spend on defense. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're all held hostage by our respective uh, congresses and by public opinion. And all these things are exactly the way they should be. You know, I mean, Taiwan, it's, it's a good thing, in my opinion, that the president of Taiwan can't decide himself how much to spend on defense. That it has to go through uh, public opinion, it has to go through the legislative UN, uh, that this is a solid democracy, and this is just the way things work in a democracy. Um, on the submarines, though, uh, I think Taiwan's uh, they from what I understand, just from attending uh, some the industry conferences, uh, their uh, proposed submarine uh, does meet their defense requirements. And it's a requirement that's been out there for 30 or 40 years. Um, and then you know, everyone's second judging it, I think for political reasons, not operational reasons. I think there have been some very good studies that have been done uh, by PAC fleet and by others. I think Admiral Harris even, our, our Pacific Command commander, is on the record on this. Uh, that there is certainly an operational need. We certainly don't question Japan or South Korea for building uh, normal diesel-electric submarines. We don't tell them they should build cheap um, you know, Iranian-style midget submarines. And I think Taiwan does have a legitimate requirement. And if you look at all the many missions that a diesel-electric submarine can provide you in all the ways at the operational level that that complicates PLA plans, Bear in mind that it, the joint attack operation against Taiwan is incredibly complex and difficult. Uh, and if, you've, if you read any of the PLA literature on their, their campaign plans regarding this, this issue, you can see that submarines have a very important role to play. Uh, and you do need submarines that are able to be manned, that are able to put at sea for a very long period of time potentially, uh, that are, are stealthy and that have, I don't know, six torpedo tubes and, and the, the full range of, of capabilities. I think it's a mistake for us to second judge this issue, uh, just because I've never met anybody in Washington, D.C., including the Pentagon, that knows Taiwan's own defense requirements better than the commander of Taiwan's Navy, who's been studying this for 30 or 40 years. Do we really think we know Taiwan's war plans and its, its requir- requirements and its logistical uh, and support abilities and its uh, tactical combat abilities, uh, and do we think we have better intelligence on? what China would do to Taiwan in this scenario. Do we think we know that all more than Taiwan? I don't think we do. And if we can't say that we do know it better than they do, then I think it makes sense for us to support their program, which is, uh, it's a domestic program after all. Uh, And it's a program that would benefit from US support. And so that's just my personal uh, opinion on that. It may be expensive, uh, but I don't think you can get really cutting edge, good capabilities cheaply. Uh, I I simply don't think we can do it. I don't think Taiwan can do it. I think defense is is expensive, and I think it's an investment worth making.
1: Thank you. You had a question up here.
3: Hi, Stan Weeks, uh, Science Applications International Corporation and uh, Naval War College professor. I just, um, I may be the only person in the room, but I have not seen all the articles and I uh, am ashamed to say that I haven't
5: been getting Chris Nelson's
3: report lately. So could I just uh, get you to elaborate a little bit in your speculation as to what's coming and when and what it includes, there were some intriguing points dropped like it won't include F-16s likely, I realize it's it's uh, all speculation but I'd, I'd like to hear a little more of it.
1: Who wants to speculate and I think this is on the record so who wants to on the record speculate on
4: Just in the terms package? of the, the package that's being considered right now Oh it's just the things that I mentioned So it's uh, Perry class um, missile frigates guided missile frigates uh, I think two possibly four but probably two um, it's and that would be for the Navy. Uh, Yes, but they haven't been notified to Congress, Uh, so it would be that. It would be uh, amphibious assault vehicles, uh, AAV-7, I believe, Uh, maybe a dozen or more of those for their Marine Corps. I think Taiwan already has, after South Korea, the largest number of these Amtraks uh, of any Marine Corps on the planet other than our own. Um, So this would just be providing them with uh, kind of an update in that area and uh, more capabilities, more uh, recent capabilities. Uh, And then for the Army, it would be an Apache helicopter. Uh, It would be, we think, again, this is all speculation according to the the media report, and we don't really know because these things are always a secret until they're notified to Congress. Um, And then missiles, so tow missiles, javelin missiles, basically uh, modern-day anti-tank weapons. Uh, if you think of the old World War II bazooka, a very sophisticated, updated uh, version of th- those. And then uh, Stinger uh, uh, air defense capabilities, which I think everyone's fairly familiar with. Uh, and so that's kind, of the, that's kind of the speculation. That's what's been reported. But again, we don't know for sure. Uh, no, this is, has not been suggested for this package.
1: Any other questions? Um, so, I have a question that I'd like to ask, again, on the theme of elections and our election. Um, you know, as I've said, Taiwan has very much not come up, but I'm sure it's something that you know, in their briefings and in their thoughts, all of the candidates are thinking about. And I'd love to hear thoughts from you, you know, with the lens of Taiwan's defense. You know, who do you guys want to see in the driver's seat? And you look like you need a little time on that one. So, if, uh, Joanna, do you want to start?
2: Um you know, I guess we'll start with the Democratic side because the Republican side is just so uh complicated right now. It's very, uh, very <laughs> diplomatic. <Bizarre>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and you know, like it, what, what are the democratic candidates? You have Hillary Clinton, you have Governor O'Malley, and you have uh Bernie Sanders. You know, I do feel like Hillary Clinton, you know, just having been, you know, the, the Secretary of State and being a senator, I mean, and if you watch her, the debate, you know, she's very strong on foreign policy. Um, in fact, I mean, he's, she's almost like a defense Democrat in a way, you know, so, so I feel like she's one of those good combinations where she's she, she's good on, you know, domestic U.S. policy but also very good on defense, you know, that's a very uh, unique, uh, I think, Qualific- you know, quality that a Democrat has, that she, she as a Democrat has. So, I mean, I think she would be pretty strong. Um, although, although you, I mean, it was during her husband's um, tenure, you know, that there was a Taiwan policy review, right? Um, so I think, I think she, she would probably have a, take a pretty pragmatic approach, um, you know, towards towards Taiwan. Um, Government O'Malley does not have foreign policy experience, so it's really hard to, to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bernie Sanders, I think he, he is more of a a libertarian, you know, and libertarians usually kind of want to not get involved in foreign affairs. So, um, so there's that on the democratic side. On the republican side, I don't know, the, <laughs> Donald Trump is going to build a beautiful bridge to Taiwan and extend welcoming arms. I have no idea, but, um, <laughs> but no. You heard um, it here
1: first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's going to be huge and beautiful, you know, <laughs> everyone just come and anyways. Um, you know, but I think the more more probably serious contenders is probably you know Bush and Rubio, um, and they're both very very strong on, on defense, right? Um, on foreign policy, in general. And I, in fact, I think it was Rubio during the Republican debate that actually brought up China. In, in I think I think it was him. Like no, I mean because um, I think there was a question posed to all the candidates like you know what do you think are United States number one like foreign policy foreign policy challenge? And I think most people answer you know Al Qaeda, ISIS. But, but he, he, he mentioned that, but then he also brought up China as kind of like an emerging threat. So it, it shows that he's, he's looking at Asia as a strategic you know, area, as well as you know, the Middle East. Um, so, so that seems to be he's able to look at more than one region of the world, which is great. Um, and then you know, and Bush, I mean, I think there's a lot of kind of expectations of him just because you know, of his, his family background. But also you know, he, from all intents and purposes, is a very thoughtful man. Um, that thoughtfulness, I don't feel like have uh, translated to articulation of policy as well during the debates, unfortunately. But I think everybody's still in you know, a wait and see mode to see if he will kind of rise to the challenge. Um, so, so I think those are kind of like the candidates. Yeah. I see.
1: What do you think, Bob?
3: <coughs> I think it depends on a couple of things. One, it, it depends on what the the tone is of U.S.-China relations uh, in twenty seventeen. Uh, it looks to me like Xi Jinping wants to keep tensions at a minimum, uh, and then another another factor that I think could could animate Congress is if the if if the Chinese are uh, very openly putting a lot of heat on the, the new Taiwan government, I think that could get a reaction in Congress, also. So that, that's what I would look for. I don't think there's, um, I mean, I think. Uh, Unless she's indicted, I think Hillary Clinton is probably going to be the Democratic candidate, and I think I would agree with your characterization of her. Uh, the Republican side is, God only knows, um, but I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't bet the mortgage on Trump winning, let me put it that way. Um, but I, but I, th- I think that those are the factors that will determine whoever the candidate is.
1: Okay, Ian?
4: Well, Isaac, that's a, uh, that's a good question. Uh, When I think of where the United States is right now in this election season so far, because we're just, we've got a long road to go yet. um, Especially when it comes to foreign policy and defense issues. um, I think of it like this. It's as if we're on one of those giant cruise liners in the Caribbean. And in our galley, there's a broken pipe. And it's spraying cold, dark, dank, smelly water at us. And we can't really see beyond that. Because outside of our ship, there's very dark, potentially hurricane clouds that are gathering on the horizon. But we can't see that because we're in the galley trying to fix a leaky pipe. That's kind of been the story of our times. In recent years, we have been surprised at the strategic level so many times, right? From uh, Russia in the Crimea and the Ukraine, to ISIS in Iraq, to Ebola in Africa to island building in the South China Sea, to North Korean nuclear tests, to budget crisis and sequestration here in DC. It has been one string of constant crises. And when you're in the midst of that, it is very difficult to look beyond that and to look into the future because you're trying to put out all those fires. Some of which, if they really spread, uh, could be very problematic indeed. And so you're not thinking about the long term strategic challenge uh, in front of you. And I think it's obvious that that challenge is China, and its military modernization program, and specifically the defense of Taiwan. But again, I don't think we've been focused on that. I don't think it it has come up in the debates for all those reasons. There's a lot of other things that are in the news today. Um, We have Americans that have their lives at risk around the world uh, in other areas. And so I think quite rightly, people are focused on all those other problems. Uh, But from a broader perspective, it certainly would be good to see a candidate talk about Taiwan and the the threat it faces and the opportunities that that are there for stronger U.S.-Taiwan relations because I do think this is going to be one of the most important uh, flashpoints and most important issues, and we must get it right. If we don't, uh, I'm afraid uh, in the next 10 years we're going to be in for some serious problems that would really eclipse all the things that we worry about today.
1: Uh, not an optimistic note to end on, but I think a, a quite a good one and, and really nice thinking there. So I want to thank all of the panelists for coming out today and thank all of you for coming out today as well. And I think this was a great conversation. So thank you.